Hey, this morning, as we're getting going with the message, we're going to be continuing with Acts. And over the last uh, couple of months, we've been looking at the book of Acts in order to talk about this vision that Jesus gave us uh, to become a church that unites diverse people. And it's taken us on a journey through different types of stories. A lot of these stories are foundational for us to begin with because they lay the groundwork, the foundation, the theology that we need to go the distance. And um, I also know that in this space, as we're pretty focused on a singular topic here, that all of us sort of come with different, you know, backgrounds. We come with different states of, of being, of, of, of soul. And so I want to lead us in a word of prayer before we begin today. So whatever week you kind of had, whether it was a great week, uh, a week that requires you know, uh, a lot of downloading or journaling, or maybe you've had like a, uh, just, uh, you've been in kind of a funk and been trying to work your way forward and been having a hard time with that. Wherever you might be this morning, I am reminded through the words of the songs that we sang this morning and through what we try to do every week when we come here to worship. We're connecting with the living God and he is here. And his spirit dwells among us. His spirit leads us. And I just want to acknowledge that as we enter in today. So let's pray and, and let's do that. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you. And we know that we come with the assurance and the promise of your love. And we also come before you knowing that your spirit is alive and is working in us today. So where, whatever we come with today with distraction, with worry, with fear, with difficulty, with hardship, even with pain. In all these things, we come before you and we ask that you would speak to us this morning. Help us to connect through your word, through prayer, through conversation, through the gift of friendship, through all these things. We ask for your guidance now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So Acts is an interesting book, and I, I wanted to do, what I wanted to do this morning as we begin, we begin looking at the series again, is a brief two-minute summary of where we've been so far. So it's kind of like, it's a large book. We can't do every single verse and chapter, and that would take us a little bit too long. Uh, we're doing selective studies. But I wanted to give us, first of all, a kind of review of the first few chapters and really a summary of chapters 1 through 7, because here in chapter 8, what we're going to look at today, we're turning a corner and we're looking at new things. God is inviting his church into a new stage of growth. But first of all, let's talk about where we've been so far. First of all, there's this big vision by Jesus. And Jesus says, go to this world that you inhabit and, and share the good news. And he tells this group of 120 people to do unthinkable things. And yet he gives them the spirit of God as a gift. And then they go. And in this going, they, they experience exponential growth. They move from a, a group of 120 people living in a, like meeting in a, in a smaller room to a group of thousands that meets in the temple courts. It's an amazing growth, and God is behind all of it. But with all of this increasing growth, there's also an increasing opposition. The Jewish leaders of the day, the religious leaders in the city of Jerusalem, don't like any of this growth. 
And so they begin to push down hard against this early church. It happened with Peter and John, and then it happens with this guy named Stephen. So I put Stephen's icon up there today. Um, just remember who this guy was. Now, last week we talked about Acts um, and this interesting challenge when the church was diversifying. Uh, what they had to do was care for those who were a minority in their midst, the Hellenistic Jews. And Stephen was one of the guys chosen to do that. He was full of the Spirit and he was wise. But in the unusual kind of ironic twist of events, the Hellenistic religious leaders decided to trump up some charges against Stephen. They brought false witnesses, brought him to court, and eventually he became the first martyr who died for his faith in Jesus. So with increasing opposition, everything begins to change. The church scatters. The church moves out. It has to because they're, they're fearing for their lives. But as the church scatters, they are now pressed up against the borders of their former life. All the borders in which they inhabited before are now coming, crashing down. And this is where we find ourselves in, cha- in Acts chapter 8. And the questions that will come toward us, what we're wrestling with in the text now, is what is God doing now? What is His Spirit doing in this new season? As He moves us outward, what is He leading us into? That's my two-minute summary. So, with that, now we get to Acts chapter 8, and we're going to be talking about the story of Philip as he encounters someone who's so far and so different from his experience um, that it, it almost seems like the most unlikely meetup of all. But in the midst of this, we learn some important things that God is wanting to show his church and what God is wanting to show you and me about life in the Spirit. As God has given his early church the Spirit of God, as God the Father has blessed us with that, there are three things that we're going to be recognizing today about this new life in the Spirit. So let's dive right into the text, and we'll get to those things. So Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Our first point today begins with just one verse, one simple verse. And it's a verse that's sort of very pregnant with meaning. There's a lot of things going on in Acts chapter chapter 8, and specifically in verse 26. So I'm going to take a minute to pause here and talk a little bit about context and what Philip is actually experiencing. As the church is scattered and it moves out, it begins to to move into spaces that it, it didn't inhabit before. And it it forces this Jewish community to come into contact with their neighbors, specifically their Samaritan neighbors. Now, the Jews and the Samaritans, if you don't know much about Bible world, um, they didn't really get along. They were neighbors, but they weren't friendly neighbors. They just didn't have that kind of common history. There was a lot of tension. They were enemies. Jesus once told this parable about a good Samaritan, and it was a radical story. Why? Because Samaritans weren't good. They weren't known to be good. They weren't good neighbors. 
And Jesus told this revolutionary story to help us reimagine what our neighbors could be like and what neighboring could be like. But here is real life. The church is now finding itself in Samaria. And as they preach the good news, there's actually success going on. This old-time rivalry, this enemy relationship is transformed. And in the earlier parts of Acts chapter 8, it says that the city of Samaria was filled with great joy. Why? Because the gospel of Jesus has come and former enemies were now friends. There was reconciliation. There was peace. There were new things to be imagined because now these enemies were part of the same church together. And then this happens. God calls Philip to leave. Go, leave Samaria and go to the desert road. And you might be thinking to yourself, why, why on earth would this happen? And I know if I were Philip in that moment, that would definitely be my question. God, this is a great moment. Why would you ask me to leave and go to a desert road? Now, to be clear, there's no name that's given here. And God gives a surprisingly lack, a surprising lack of details. He doesn't tell them exactly where to go. Just, hey, go to that desert road. You know that place between A and B? It's not A and it's not B. It's that place between A and B. Um, when you look at a map of human population, humans don't just spread evenly around the map. If you ever fly an airplane, you look out the window and you just look down. There's a lot of empty spaces between cities. And especially if you fly at night, you see cities that are all lit up with lights. And there's lots of darkness between cities. That's because people stick together for a reason, for safety, for economic reasons, to, to make sure there's opportunity that to be had. There's safety in sort of numbers. And yet God is calling Philip to leave to go to a desert road. And he's not really telling him why, how long to be there, why he should go, and how long he should stay. And this leads us to the first point I just want to make today about life in the Spirit. That life in the Spirit will take us, will lead us to desert roads. Now, what do I mean by that? What is a, a desert road? There are times when, when God will call us to leave certainty for uncertainty. There will be times when God calls us from success to questions, to a lack of success, for a lack of outward productivity. There will be times in the spiritual life when God calls us downward. And I would say that these are some of the more difficult experiences in the spiritual life to understand. A lot of questions come up for us. Why would God do this? Why are these things, why do these things happen when a loving God who says he loves us tells us to go downward? Emily, this is one of the questions I've, I've struggled with a lot throughout life. And probably one of my more difficult times of wrestling when I had to wrestle through some of these things was when I was wrestling with my sense of calling into the ministry. On the one hand, I really felt like in my late high school and my, throughout my college years and afterwards, 
that God was calling me to serve in church ministry, which on the one hand would sound great. It feels like a really godly, spiritual thing to do. But I was also, at the same time, uh, filled with voices that were very negative (laughs) about the decision, namely from my parents and from my college roommate. Uh, When I was kind of discerning my call to go into ministry, uh, I remember my college roommate, this is my sophomore year in college, I decided to switch majors from mechanical engineering to sociology. Nothing wrong with mechanical engineers. Uh, some of you here might be mechanical engineers. Uh, blessings to you. Uh, but I really felt like God was calling me to something else because it would help me to understand people and dynamics and what the church was. I mean, and it really did. Um, but when I made that switch, this made no sense to my roommate, who wasn't an engineer, uh, and to my parents, who, who longed for their son, their oldest son, to, to follow this route and this path. Um, so one day, my uh, college roommate came back. He had this university paper. And on it, on the front page, it had a listing of all these ma- college majors, all the you know, university majors. And near the top of the list, mechanical engineering was like third. I think he was like number one. He was electrical engineering. He was just showing me this paper. And he says, look, Ted, you just fell to the bottom of the list. And sociology was way at the bottom, you know. And I was like, yeah, thanks, man. It was like, that, that's the kind of encouragement I need in this moment. It's like that, that, that movement. I think one of the difficult things about moving into a desert road experience is not just that it's hard on our own souls, but it's hard in community. It's hard for people to understand, why would God lead you there? How could that possibly be God's will for you? Why would God ask you to give up something good, like a degree that would give you a stable income, for something far less? Why? My mom was very similar in her <laughs> messaging, and we... We argued back and forth for about four years, and almost every family conversation we had during those years would devolve into this argument about what, what Ted was going to do with his life. Was Ted going to follow this family plan, or was, fa- or was Ted going to, to follow this dream of being in ministry? Um, and a lot of it, as it turned out in later years, I found out, um, these voices, uh, there are these set of voices that not only came from my mom, but they came from my extended family, who were all telling my mom, your son's wasting his life. <laughs> what is he doing? Uh, and most of them were, at that time, were not of the faith. And they couldn't understand why somebody would give up a degree in engineering to pursue a life of helping others in church world. Now, That's some of my experience. And I wanted to kind of expand this to talk about these experiences that we might have in life in general. And not everyone is called to make that switch. But it is true that sometimes God calls us to desert road experiences. And in some of your lives, it may be that very same thing. And it's hard to understand why all of a sudden, success is not there anymore. It's hard to understand why relationships are not working out well. Or that God has called you into a relationship and all of a sudden it's far more complicated, far more complex, and far more damaging than you thought it would be. 
Well, then maybe God has called you into a leadership experience and maybe a ministry of some sort. But rather than success, it means a lot more pain, a lot more sleepless nights, a lot more of this downward spiral than, than you thought. Why would God try? Why would God ask us to do these things? I think it's a very natural thing for human beings to seek safety, security, certainty, and the known. These are very natural things. And not, you know, some of us on the Enneagram are sixes. I'm not, but, you know, I, there may be a number of you here who are sixes. And safety and security and, and regularity, these are really important things for sixes. But let me just say this. It's a very human thing. It's not just an Enneagram six thing. Um, anybody remember Maslow's, like, diagram, the, the triangle from, like, high school, right? So the diagram used to say, like, uh, among human beings, we need things in life, right? So you need air, you need food, you need to sleep. These are, like, the very bottom layer of Maslow's triangle. Uh, and right after that, what does he say is the next level of human need? Love, actually, that's a little bit later. Security. It is very similar, but yeah, um, uh, love and belonging are also in that too, but it's a sense of security, of wanting to be safe. So, I summarize it this way. It's human for all of us to want safety, security, and certainty and success. So why would our God take any of this away? Three quick words I want to say about this this morning as we're kind of entering this text with Philip. The number one thing that's really important for us to understand here is that it doesn't mean that God has forgotten or removed his love. Lack of success, a calling into the unknown, a calling away from certainty is never to be equated with a lack of God's love. And I think that's maybe one of the first messages that we often tell ourselves. When these things are missing, it feels like God's love has gone lost. But it doesn't mean that at all. In fact, there may be something greater about his love that he's trying to reveal. A second thing I want to just point out quickly here is that there may be some necessary reorientation of our loves and our affections. We all crave security as human beings. And the unfortunate thing is that some of us love security and certainty. We not just, it's not just a need, it becomes a love. And not only is it a love, we turn this love and we, we make it into something far more difficult in our lives. We may call it an idol. It becomes an affection that that begins to damage our relationship with others and with God. And one of the kindest things God can do for us in these seasons is to begin to reveal to us how weak it is for our love and our affections to be about things, to be about titles, to be about our education, to be about our our looks or our clothing and all the things that we secure ourselves with, there may be some necessary reorientation of our lives and affection. 
But here it is, the main point that I want to get to today regarding why desert road experiences happen. And this leads us to our vision for what we're trying to become as a church. There are new things that God will show us at the borders of our faith. And as a church that unites diverse people, we need to be willing to enter new spaces with God. We need to be able to think, act, and feel differently. And what God is doing is reorienting his church around new things that he's going to show them. So let's keep going in the text. There's much more to say. So we'll, we'll get to the meat of the text today in Acts chapter 8, verses 27 to 31 and following. So this is Philip. Philip started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandik, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. And the spirit told Philip, go to the chariot, stay near it. And Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah, the prophet, and said, do you understand what you are reading? And Philip asked, how can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And this is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. This is an interesting passage, and we're basically encountering a character in the Bible that is so unusual, it really takes uh, a few minutes here, a few moments to kind of go into his background. Uh, Luke tells us some things, and from these details, we can gather a few things about who this man was. First of all, this Ethiopian eunuch was a spiritual pilgrim. He was a pilgrim who made his way from Ethiopia to Jerusalem. Now, back in ancient days, as some people do even today, people make pilgrimages. They go on a journey to learn more about God, to learn more about themselves, and to come into a deeper sense of encounter with what God might be doing. These pilgrimages are very important um, times of the soul because what you're doing is you're paying particular attention to your thirst and your desire. And these spiritual desires, this man from Ethiopia, this spiritual desire is so much that it has moved him from a faraway country, from a different continent completely, to move all the way to Jerusalem to try and search for God. This is what this man was about. Now, what was his story and what was so significant about being an Ethiopian? Ethiopian eunuch. Um, now, eunuch is not something that we encounter uh, every day. Um, back in ancient times, there were people who made this willing sacrifice sometimes. There were people who were missing uh, sexual organs um, who were castrated in order to serve in someone else's court. 
a unique, uh, sometimes uh, made that choice voluntarily, and sometimes it, that choice was um, put upon them at birth so that they could be groomed for a position of leadership. Now, this person in Ethiopia, this Ethiopian eunuch, was also in charge of the treasury of the Kandik, which means that he was in charge of his nation's treasury. He was a man with a lot of means. And there's a couple details in the story that we read that reveal more of his character. First of all, he acquired a book of Isaiah. Now, people in the first century didn't walk around with scriptures. They just didn't have them. It wasn't like you could just whip out your Bible and, you know, share a couple of verses. You didn't have version. You can just click it on your phone. Nobody had scrolls like that back in the ancient day. If you did, it meant you were very wealthy or maybe you were a national figure trying to bring it back to your national library because you found this important text. This person was a, a person of means. But secondly, notice this, he was reading from Isaiah. Back then, there weren't English, Spanish, Chinese versions of the Bible. (laughs) This was probably written either in Hebrew or Greek, and this guy was reading it, which meant he was also highly educated. He was someone really smart, with a lot of means, able to read the scripture on his own, But here is the dilemma. He knew enough about God to crave him, but he didn't know enough to connect. He knew from reading scripture that he wanted and longed for the God that was spoken of. But he didn't know how to make that final step to be truly connected to this God. And so here's the interesting dynamic of Acts chapter 8. God takes Philip, an apostle of the church, who's living this successful revival movement, leading this successful revival movement in Samaria, removes him from that context to a desert road in order to bring the gospel to this one man who is seeking and craving a relationship with God. He takes him away from the many in order to serve the one. There's a lot of ramifications for what this is about and a lot of things that we might imagine about God's heart from this story. But one thing I do want to point out is this, and it's important for us to know. The life in the Spirit will lead us to God's greater work in the world. Here at Access, we talk about mission sometimes, right? We live life with God in soul, community, mission. And the tagline we often give around mission is that we're joining God's work in the world. This is what mission is, and we, we, it's our quick way of defining what mission is. Now, there's different ways we can define it. There's certainly a lot of different ranges of meaning when we talk about mission, But one important way that we define it here is this. Mission is about joining God's work in the world. And the assumption is this. God is already at work in this world. He is alive and doing things around the world. 
And it isn't just that the church needs to do something because we're the only hope of the world. We are doing something because God's loving and generous heart is already at work in the world. And what this story reveals to us and what it reminds us of and what it shows us is this. God was long at work in the heart of this Ethiopian eunuch before Philip got there. To bring him from a faraway land, to bring him to the text of Isaiah, to have him read, to have him on this desert road, and to counter an apostle along the way. How much more did God love this Ethiopian eunuch? Life in the Spirit will lead us to God's greater work in the world. Now, I point this out because many of us have lived a long time in a religious environment that has separated what God does and what God doesn't do in the world that we imagine. It's a world that's separated by what we call the sacred versus secular. So, Back when I first became a Christian, I was in high school, and I had a set of friends that belonged to this really uh, conservative Korean church uh, that made it very clear to me that the music I listened to <laughs> was really bad, you know. We were just in the prayer room before we started. There's, we, here at this church, we have this mug that says Duran Duran on it, right? So you're Duran Duran, <laughs> you're Depeche Mode, you're U2. All that stuff was, it's, it's not of God, it's secular. What you need to listen to is like, you know, Michael W. Smith or Amy Grant. I, I don't know if you know any of these names. Um, but <laughs> there was a challenge to throw away all of my music. And this is a really hard thing to do. And we continue. Some of you kind of have known this environment or have been raised in religious environments that really made a hard line between the sacred and the secular. There's secular work, and there's God's work, you know, like the, the work of the church. There's secular music, and there's God's music, which really is a conundrum when you think about, like, music with no lyrics, right? So is Bach secular or sacred? Or... Anyways, um, and education, there's a sacred, a sacred educations that you can have or a secular ones. Um, there are many more ways in which we can define these things. And some of us who have grown up with this more fundamentalist way of looking at the world, I, I just want to call this out here, that this is also, ha- this does have roots in Scripture, so it's not completely foreign. When you look at the Old Testament, for example, there was God's holy mountain. You know, when, when Moses was called to go to the mountain, it was very much a sacred moment. Not everyone could go there. When God set up the temple, there was the holy of holies, right? Not everyone could just go there because God was there in a unique way in which he spoke through his priests. So there are spiritual foundations for this concept, and it's not completely to be you know, abandoned. But here in Acts, something takes precedent. There is a new way of thinking. And this is what we encounter in Acts chapter 8. It's also what we encounter in later chapters. In Acts, we are called to ask a new question, new set of questions. That is, what is God doing in this world 
and how can we join? This is the mission of God. It's a paradigm shift in which this old way of thinking, it's not like it's not valid. Sometimes we do need to separate sacred and secular, and sometimes there are helpful ways in which to imagine those things. But there is a new. And what God is inviting us to see and what God is inviting you to take hold of is a new set of questions. What is God doing in this world and how can you join? How can you be a part of this? There's a quote by this um, author and theologian. Uh, Willie Jennings is an American theologian from Yale, a uh, brilliant writer. Um, and I really love this quote. I was reading about Acts this week. It says that the world outside the gospel is not first a world possessed by Satan, but a world loved by God. I think this is a, a very useful, very helpful quote to reorient the way that we look at the world in which we inhabit. Rather than suspicion, God is calling us to look at it through the eyes of faith, with a sense of love, with his kingdom hope. The world outside the gospel is not first a world possessed by Satan, but a world loved by God. And God so loved the world that he gave us his son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. As we keep going here, there's uh, one last section for us to consider. Acts chapter 8, verses 34 to 38. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And as they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. They both, then both, Philip and the eunuch, went down into water, and Philip baptized him. When they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared in Zodas and traveled around preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. There's a wonderful way in which Acts chapter 8 begins to wrap up. And we are given this beautiful image around baptism. The question might be, how does baptism fit into this narrative and why is it so significant? For those of you who may be less familiar with what baptism is, Baptism is an identification of our lives with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. It's about going into the waters, imagining your life dying to its old self and coming up out of the water, rising to new life just like Jesus. This is the promise of the gospel, and baptism gives us the imagery 
It is the event. It is the grace of God given to new people who come into the faith to experience this new life. And if you're unfamiliar with this still, and this is fairly new, what Scripture tells us is this, that we human beings were made in the image of God. We were crafted and created to be like God. But along the way, we fell into sin. We began to rebel against God. There's this, now this gulf of disorientation and alienation from God. But God in his great mercy steps into human history, gives us his son, Jesus Christ, to teach us the way, and dies to take care of sin and death, the things that separate us from God. And it's in baptism that the church learned something new about how to live life in the Spirit. It's another quote here from Willie Jennings. Uh, I like this one. And I like this photo. I, I keep using the same artwork <laughs> for this series. God has broken the connection between identity and destiny, between definition and determination, and he's inserted a new trajectory. That's what's happening in baptism. We have a way of imagining who people are and what they will be because we think we know their externals, the color of their skin, the city in which they inhabit, the education they may or may not have received, the jobs that they have or don't have. We think we can imagine these things based on their externals. But in the moment of conversion, of new life, and of baptism, something brand new begins to take place. And this is a new language for me. It's new language I've been trying out. But we are given a new baptismal identity. This is where the church of the New Testament began to find its unity. There's one Lord. There's one faith. There's one baptism. It's in Jesus Christ. And there are no longer slave or free. It's not Greek or Jew. It's not male or female. Yeah, these things exist, but caught up in the whole identity of baptism, they don't mean what they used to mean anymore. This is our last point for today. Life in the Spirit will call us to know each other by our baptismal identities. So I was kind of nostalgic this week. Not only was I looking at old graphics, I was looking at old baptismal photos, and this is one of my favorites from, this used to be on our church website. I think we got tired of it, but, but I wasn't tired of it. I really like this baptismal photo because there's so much joy wrapped up in this moment. When we go into the waters, we die to our old selves. And it's in Jesus that you and I are given new life. There's a couple of new things that I want to invite you into today. There may be some of you here, and this is pretty new for you. You're not familiar with God, and maybe this message of the gospel is, is very new to you. Let me just say this. It doesn't take a lot to jump in. This Ethiopian eunuch maybe just had half an hour, maybe an hour with Philip, 
And in that time, Philip was able to explain to him what it meant to find new life in Christ. And what should stop him from being baptized? Same goes to you. That same question. What should stop you? The invitation of Jesus is always clear here at this church. Believe in him. He will take care of sin and death and bring you into new life. And if you want to begin that new life today, I'll I'll end a little bit later after our conversation with a short prayer that will help you to enter. And there's another invitation for you to know today. For those of you who may have been part of church life for a while, but you need to be reminded of this. We have a new baptismal identity in Christ. It is this very theological underpinning, this new way of seeing other people. This is what unites a diverse people. This is how the church does it. This is how the gospel does it. This is how Jesus does it. He'll give you a new identity in the family of God. couple questions for us to end today with. I, I really struggle with some of these, so I hope these are, are good questions. You can give some feedback later if they're too abstract, but here they are anyways. Um, God called Philip to a desert road, and for us, we're trying to wrestle with these moments in our lives too. Have you had to wrestle with these moments in your life, leading success, leading comfort, leading security? Desert roads can help us see God's work in other areas of life. Namely, this is mission for us, right? And the church was given a glimpse of that with the Ethiopian meaning. Where do you see God at work today? And what would it look like for you to join in this work? And finally, the early church was given a new way to imagine inclusion. Through the waters of baptism, we are given a baptismal identity. What could it look like to prioritize this identity above the things that often divide us in our world. So let's take a, a minute or two. We'll take about three minutes. Um, oh, uh, and then we'll, we'll pray as we'll um, tell you what. Take, a, take this home with you. Um, you can uh, snap a photo of this if you'd like to. Um, if you're in a small group, these are the questions for your week, um, and feel free to add to them or, or go deeper with them, and some feedback would be great if, if you need to give me that. But I also just wanted to, s- just to create some space now for you to enter into this relationship with God. And there's some of you who may need to really re-enter into your baptismal identity Um, I'm going to invite our prayer ministers to come up to the front and lead us in this time. If you would like to do some of this work with God, um, uh, come see Amy or David. You don't have to explain a whole lot (laughs) if you don't want to, but enter in as you feel ready. And I'm going to lead us in a prayer first. For those of you who may want to enter in today, and you're feeling that tug at your heart, similar to that Ethiopian eunuch. If today is your day, please pray with me. Let's enter in. God, here in this space, 
we come before you in prayer. And we confess before you that we are not worthy of our, on our own. We need you. We want you. So take this frail life of ours, this broken experience that we have, and make it new. We trust in Jesus, who is the Savior of the world. We confess our sins before you. And we take upon us this promise of new life. So God, I pray for anyone here who wants to enter in, that this would be the beginning, today would be the beginning of new life. We trust this in your name. Amen. Amen. We're going to have some music to help facilitate this time. Um, and um, I'm going to wrap us up in, a, in our sending prayer and come as you feel ready to pray. Can we have our sending prayer? Let's pray together. Loving God, through all our years, let the church be a community where we learn about love and practice it, where we envision peace and work to build it, where we meet partners in faith who wish to abandon everything that cheapens our discipleship, where we discover gifts and offer them. And may your spirit guide us toward joy and generosity in Jesus' name, in the way of Jesus. Amen.